0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: UFOs seem to be invading both our skies and our news outlets like never before. And more people are starting to look up and are wondering who or what might be out there. In 2016, Ryan Sprague introduced the world to countless UFO encounters that had never been made public before. And now, in the second edition of his book, he revisits these events and introduces brand new UFO cases in Somewhere in the Skies, a human approach to the UFO phenomenon. How have these events changed the lives of those involved? And what might it tell us about the phenomenon? With in-depth follow-ups, brand new chapters, and detailed testimony from credible witnesses and insight from those in the psychological, academic, and scientific fields, Somewhere in the Skies, a human approach to the UFO phenomenon weaves together a story of stories, attempting to get to the heart of these mysteries one experience at a time. Available now on Amazon in both paperback and ebook. To learn more, visit somewhereintheskies.com. is somewhere in the skies with Ryan spread.
0: Jeremy McGowan served in the U.S. Air Force Security Forces for four years. In 1995, he was deployed on a classified security mission deep in the Jordanian Desert in the Middle East. His mission? To guard a large crate, contents unknown in the dead of night in the desolate
2: sands. I get, uh, I get to my post. I don't remember if it was a, a captain or a lieutenant, but he basically said, all right, here's, here's your post. What am I doing? He's like, well, you're guarding this crate. Okay, what's in the crate? Don't ask that question. All right, what do you mean by guard the crate? Where are my SOPs? Where's my rules of engagement? He was like, just don't let anybody near it. Can you define near it? No, just don't let anybody near the crate. Is anybody authorized near the crate? No, don't let anybody near the crate. What happens if somebody gets near the crate? Shoot them! While
0: guarding the crate, he and another security member had what can only be described as an authentic UFO event directly above the crate.
2: I saw his head drop down and swing to the left, and I'm like, yep, he saw it. And he takes the nods off, and he just hands them back to me. He pulls out another cigarette, he lights it, and he walks off. We never spoke about it again. And it just burned itself into my brain, man.
0: After coming forward for the very first time ever on the History Channel television series, Unidentified, McGowan is convinced that he may just find some answers, along with the former director of ATIP, the secret Pentagon UFO program, Luis Elizondo.
2: And I've had conversations with Lou, and he has never told me what it is. I have a very, very solid belief that he knows exactly what it is. But I also believe that why he knows what it is, is because of his association during his involvement with the government, which falls under his classification and his security clearance, and he cannot say. He's adamant to me that I am going to know what it was that I saw.
0: And what if the UFO above was somehow connected to the crate below? What could it all mean? And what was in that crate?
2: we might not always be the good guys and i say that because in my research i believe that i've tracked down the final dispensation of that crate where it went and why it went there and if my hypothesis and my theory is, is true about that the united states may well deserve a lot of the bad monikers that we've earned over the years Jeremy, first
0: off, I want to thank you for your service and welcome you to Somewhere in the Skies.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. I greatly appreciate it. It's, uh, it's good to be here.
0: Thanks, man. Well, a lot of my listeners may have seen you recently on the history television series Unidentified, and we're going to dig deep into that and why you were on the show. But before we do that, um, I was wondering, could you sort of paint us a picture for the listeners of uh who you are and maybe a little about why you um joined the air force where you served (laughs) with your time and and what your duties were and all that give us the origin story jeremy if you don't mind
2: yeah you know the origin story just saying it like that makes it sound a whole lot sexier than it actually is (laughs) um why i joined the air force uh you know I'd, i'd love to be able to say that uh my whole fit family has a, a huge military history, which they kind of do, or, or I was influenced by uh, a great hero or something like that. But honestly, uh, right out of high school, I was working at IBM, and uh, I didn't really fit in with the big blue culture. I had long hair, probably a little bit of a mullet going on back in those days. Of course, this was the late 80s, so if you didn't play soccer and have a mullet, you were doing life wrong. Um <laughs> But I was working in uh, diagnostic and repair of the PS2 systems that IBM had just come out with. And, uh, you know, like I said, I, I didn't really fit in there. And uh, one, one day after a uh, particularly crappy day at work, I uh, was riding my, my motorcycle home, and I noticed an Armed Forces recruiting station off to the side of the road. And uh, I made a UE, pulled into the parking lot, walked in. I walked past the Army guys, walked past the Navy and, and the Marine Corps guys, and the Air Force guys were all the way in the back. And I just kind of plop my butt down in their desk, and they're like, "Can I help you?" And I was like, "Yeah, get me the hell out of here." They're like, "What do you want to do?" I was like, "I want to shoot guns and I want to blow stuff up." You know, six months later, I'm I'm uh, in basic training, and then Desert Storm, and and the world was falling apart, and I was right in the middle of it. So that's uh, that's how I ended up in in the Air Force, and uh, and ended up in Desert Storm.
0: Gotcha. Now, I don't know if, um, if if you're willing to share, Jeremy, or not, but could you maybe give us an idea of, you know, what rank you were um, when you finally left? Uh, maybe a little about the operations that you worked yeah. on. Again, I know a lot of this stuff may be a little no, sensitive, no. but yeah, maybe give us an idea of that.
2: Yeah, there's, there's, there's some things that I can't, uh, can't go into, but the, the generalities are fine. So I did a total of about 12 years active duty. Obviously, I went in as enlisted, and then at the uh, the end of my career, I actually had gotten selected for an officer commissioning program, uh, but I'll, I'll touch on that in just a second. So, the vast majority of my time was spent at the rank of E5, which is a staff sergeant, uh, and I spent a grand total of two and a half years combined time in the Middle East, and I served in Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, uh, Taif, uh, Jordan, obviously. Uh, some other places that may or may not have the same names now that they did then, and if I wasn't in uh, in the Middle East, I was also uh, attached with JSOC, which is Joint Special Operations Command, and uh, I did about uh, almost two years down in South America, with about a year being in Panama and a year, uh, almost a year being deep in the jungles of Colombia, in uh, in the middle of literally nowhere uh, attached to the DEA doing uh, counter-narcotics operations and things like that down there. You know, so so I've done a little bit of a lot, or a lot of a little bit, depending on how you want to look at it. I broke my back during Desert Storm uh, when I was actually uh, riding a, an ATV at a crash site. We had n- not a UFO crash site. We had an F-16. <laughs> you that, knew where uh, I was going. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> I, well, we had an F-16 that went down in the middle of the desert, and it was probably five or 600 miles out into the middle of nowhere. And uh, there was just a couple of us that they had uh, flown in, dropped us off, and we had ATVs and a couple 55-gallon drums of fuel. And, of course, I was riding the ATVs through the desert. You got no supervision. You kind of do stupid stuff. And I ended up uh, one night wearing my night vision goggles. You have no depth perception with the night vision goggles because oh. they're monocular. And uh, I was riding a little faster than I should have and went up a sand dune and didn't, uh, hadn't been on the sand dune before and didn't realize that the wind had carved out the backside of the dune. And I just launched myself off the dune and fell about 60 feet to the ground, broke all four axles of the ATV and fractured my back, but uh, didn't actually know that I fractured my back. Uh, I was still able to walk. I wasn't paralyzed or anything. They, 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 got me out of there. And uh, of course, this is in the, uh, the early nineties in the middle of, you know, a, a war zone and medical technology at that time kind of sucked. So basically all I got was a, an x-ray and they saw swelling and stuff like that, but they never saw the fracture. So I was up and walking around with a broken back and it never healed properly. So the reason I'm saying this is when I, uh, uh towards the end of my military career, I had actually gotten selected for an early release for an uh, officer commissioning program. And I was going through my officer training at Tyndall Air Force Base, and I slipped off of one of the obstacles, and I couldn't get back up anymore. And they uh, they sent me in for an MRI, and they saw all the damage that I had done to my back— you know, ten, eleven years prior, and they were like, "Well, you're no longer fit for military service. Have have a nice life." So, had I uh, had I not tried to go from enlisted to becoming an officer, I probably still uh, would be in, if if not retired by now.
0: And back to civilian life, you sort of go. But man, that's uh, quite a journey you've had. And so, like I mentioned, uh, the primary focus of this interview is an encounter you had while in the military but before that even happened before we really get into that event do you ever think about ufos before this had you ever seen anything what did you make of this whole ufo thing or question or issue before this
2: you know i i sure have i thought about ufos before yeah you look up in the sky you see something it's probably a helicopter probably an airplane you're like what the hell is that it doesn't look right but you're always considering it could be something or it might be something else, right? But it's, it never is. And when you're a kid, obviously, you have a, a vivid imagination. And, you know, when I I was six years old when Star Wars came out, so, you know, you, you kind of get your psyche primed for things with science fiction. The Last Starfighter, for example, you know, you, you, you kind of want the guy to come down and recruit you to fly the, the strange uh, strange spaceships, but then you grow up. And uh, you know, I I never fell into the UFO crowd. I never went to a MUFON uh, convention. I never did any of that sort of stuff. I've I've never even picked up or read a, a UFO book. I, I think the closest I ever got to anything in in ufology was maybe reading some of uh, Eric Von Daniken's books, uh, like *Chariots of the Gods* and things like that that were written. God, that was probably back in the 1960s. Yeah and uh you know just just old school stuff but i've never been a a, an alien conspiracy theorist you know i might watch ancient aliens when when i can't find my remote and there's nothing else to turn the tv on to but you know for the for by and large the most part I, i look at it as entertainment
0: well hey that's a good way to to sort of look at it because a lot of the times when people come forward with a ufo story or whatnot uh you end up hearing, oh, yeah, they've read 300 books on UFOs. They've right. uh, believed in this stuff their whole lives. And it kind of paints a uh, a very biased perception of that individual. You know, they're yeah, probably fantasy see what they want to see. Exactly, exactly. So it's refreshing when someone like you, you know, no preconceived notions or baggage has an event like what we're going to talk about, an extraordinary event like this, and yeah. uh can come out on the other side just as credible and legitimate as – the next military witness. So, um, like I mentioned earlier, unidentified, the television show on the history channel yeah. is where I was able to find you and connect with you. And, um, how did this opportunity come about Jeremy before we, again, I'm teasing the event. I know we will get there cause I'm dying sure. to hear it. How did this opportunity come about and what compelled you to go public with this, with this television series?
2: Well, uh, Let's answer the first question first. How did the opportunity come about? Mm-hmm. Um, I, like I told you, I, I haven't really dived into the world of, of ufology. But I was sitting on my sofa one day and I keyed in on one of the episodes of uh, of season one. And I don't even know what it was. Up until that point, I didn't even know that the uh, the, the series was out. I had never even heard of it because I don't I don't have cable at my house. I use Hulu for everything, so I don't watch a lot of TV. And when I saw that episode, it just happened to be the episode where they were talking about um, the UFOs and the nukes in season one. And as I'm as I'm watching that episode, it was just like a mental gate, a floodgate opened up, and everything that I went through back in the early nineties, it just came back to me and it became, it became an itch that I had to scratch at that point in time. Um, So I got on Reddit and I didn't want to get on the show. I didn't even think about getting on the show. As far as I knew, it was, you know, one season and it had already been done and, and it was over and done with, but I get on Reddit and I post a kind of watered down version of my story. But I did it in a way not to – I don't even remember if I posted it in one of the UFO subs or if I posted it in one of the military subs. But the idea was I was trying to find anybody that was on this operation that I was on that could validate my story. I wanted to reach out and reconnect with people that had been on this same operation Uh, one person in particular, and and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into that when I recount the story, but there was somebody with me at the time and I was hoping that, you know, there are, my God, Reddit is the most wonderful collective group of detectives the world has ever seen. They can find anything. So I posted my story in the hopes that somebody would help me, uh, identify or track down the guy that was with me. It did not happen. But the comments that I got on the story told me about the show. And I was like, "Yeah, I've I've heard of the show." They're like, "Well, uh, at the end of each episode, they throw up a an, an email uh, asking for military guys to submit their stories." And you should do that. And they said I should do that because they do so much investigation. Maybe they could actually help uncover and track down some of the people that uh, that were with me on that deployment. So I did, and that was exactly the uh, the idea that I had when I contacted the show. Is I was like, "Hey, I'm I'm trying to." find out if I can track these people down or if you guys can track these people down. And even, even after the show contacted me back and I was talking to Anthony, uh, uh, Lapp and, and, and the, uh, the other producers and, and such, even when I was being interviewed by Lou, I'd ask them, Hey, can you help me find these people? I, you know, I want validation, but, but I sent the email to, uh, to the show and I didn't hear anything. It, it must've been weeks, if not a month or so had gone by. Then out of the blue, uh, one of the uh, one of the producers contacted me and the email was kind of sketchy, kind of standoffish because, you know, they didn't know me, but they were just basically asking if if I would want to give more information or more detail on my story. And uh, I was I was very skeptical. I was very hesitant because I didn't really want to give more information on my story. I wanted them to help me find people to validate my story. So through a series of emails and conversations and, and things like that, I became a little bit more relaxed with them. Uh, the people on the show, the production team on the show, they are extremely professional. And not once during any of this did I ever feel like, felt like I was being made fun of or laughed at or, or anything. These, these guys were taking this seriously. Then moving through, you know, they they fly me to New York and I I sit down and I have conversations with uh, with Lou before and during taping and, and even after taping and and uh, I met Anthony and uh, and these guys and man I tell you what I I didn't think that anybody took this crap seriously yeah. and it was such a refreshing thing because and I think one of the reasons that people are starting to come out more especially from the military is. There has been this stigma for so long about this that you don't, you know, I even said it on the show, you don't want to be the guy that sees the UFO. You don't want to have that label on you, right? But the way that that Lou and Anthony and the show has put this stuff together, and I I want to say the show is not Lou. Mm -hmm. The show is the history channel with A&E Networks, and it has creative licenses. Lou is TTSA and it's two separate entities. You know, Lou doesn't do creative on the show. The show doesn't tell Lou how to how to do his job. It's it's like a a docu-series that kind of follows Lou and and his guys around. But, you know, I'm I'm sitting there and talking to both sides of the house and they were they were absolutely serious. And like I said, I think this is a reason that a lot of people are coming out is because now there are these cred, credentialed individuals, you know, Lou with his background and I won't go into it because everybody knows what his background is by now. And, and Anthony, Anthony was a war correspondent and a, and a war journalist with serious journalistic, uh, credentials behind him. And when these guys are taking you seriously and it comes across in the show and the production value and everything. And, and I think people see that this is not a farce. This is, this is not, uh, Oh, you know, some ancient tech decided how to liquefy, Uh, rock and that's why some ancient temples have perfectly rounded corners no this is this is legitimate sticking to the facts type of type of reporting and it made me talk about it and because i talked about it now it actually feels good to talk about it because you know this is something that you've had bottled up for 24 25 years and to come out in such uh, such a, a grandiose platform but having people like Chris Mellon and Steve Justice and Lou Elizondo not only listen to you and give you that nod and the wink that they get it but also to know the background and the research and the vetting that they put into you before you can tell your story you know that's that is also a series of validations that that I would never have gotten anywhere else and right. it made me feel that you know hey my brain did not short circuit that day
0: you saw something, and you yeah. legitimately saw something. Well, I mean, Anthony was a guest on the show a few weeks ago, and you're right, I can vouch for everything you're saying. I've never met him in person, but the passion, the amount of seriousness he takes this entire thing, uh it's a match made in heaven between he and To the Stars Academy. Both yeah. want the best thing for this topic, especially for our military, who yeah. for 70-plus years in the UFO world, it was very rare for us to have this opportunity to... I mean, I'm a UFO researcher talking to you, a military veteran who saw a UFO. This was not always the case, Jeremy. And I mean, it's changed the entire yeah. conversation. It has uh, changed the entire protocol within the mi- military, which we'll get to. And I do agree, I think, both To the Stars and this television show have completely changed the landscape of... Taking this topic seriously. We're mm. not talking about little green men in f- yeah. metal flying saucers. We're talking about phenomena we cannot explain. And it could be a potential threat, which is something I want to touch on too. But, um, yeah, man, before we get into all that, the head of your questions, let's do it point by point. If you're comfortable with that, mm. um, sharing with us, walk us through your event, um, maybe an approximate time and everything where it happened and yeah, tell us what you saw, what happened.
2: Yeah. So, and and before I get into it, uh, I want to, I want to let your viewers know or listeners know that there was, there was a portion in the show where Lou comes on and Lou said that he had to be very careful about describing uh, some of the nuances and the details of where I was and what I was doing when I saw what I saw. Uh, Lou, Does have to be careful. Lou has an active security clearance. Mine has lapsed. I no longer have a security clearance and I am no longer or never was representing the History Channel or A&E or anybody like that. So what I say is, is not a reflection of, uh, of those production, uh, houses and, and I'm not beholden to their attorneys either. So there are some things that I do have to, I got to choose my words carefully. Yeah. Yeah. But I will go into a little bit more detail about uh, who, what, where, when, and why than than Lou was able to expose on the show.
0: Thank you for that.
2: Yeah, ab- absolutely. It, it, they did a great job on on being able to tell the story, but there was a lot left on the floor uh, on the cutting room floor. But it's it they did a fantastic job being able to keep the continuity and and keep the understanding there. Um, so, basically, it, this, this happened in the early 1990s, uh, uh, 1995 to be exact. Uh, and keep in mind that, uh, you know, just, just uh, four years earlier, uh, the Soviet Empire had collapsed. Mm-hmm. And this was, you know, precedent-setting. We, we had never seen in, in our lifetime such a collapse of, of society and we saw the formation of nation-states, we saw countries being born from the rubble of of the Soviet Union and these countries uh, they didn't have a political history, they they just became an entity and a lot of these entities had uh, nuclear weapons because the Soviet Union, the Soviet Empire had placed nuclear weapons throughout their entire territory so when Uh, nation states like uh, georgia or whatever would would break off now they have a new government a new parliament a new military and oh my god they have nuclear weapons so that is kind of the backdrop for this i was stationed at pope air force base and uh, pope air force base no longer exists it's now part of pope field uh it's called pope field and it's part of fort bragg Uh, but back in the 90s uh, pope air force base was uh Kind of a an open secret with the Air Force, uh, we were where most of the deployments occurred. I think out of the uh, the four or five years that I was at Pope, I was maybe only on base for six or seven months at that time, and I was deployed uh, for the vast majority of it. This is where I was uh, attached or assigned to uh, a lot of deployments with JSOC. Uh, we had Delta Force was at our back door. The Green Bray Training Center was you know out of our side gate. Uh, Richard Marchenko. Would uh, would come and go quite often. I I remember having a a beer or two with him on occasion.
0: <laughs> Could you uh, share with us, Jeremy, who that is for some of our listeners who might not know?
2: Yeah. So Richard Marchenko basically founded uh, the Navy SEALs, okay. especially SEAL Team Six. He uh, he he was the guy who put it all together. So and, and he he's written several books. I don't remember the, the names of his books, but uh, but your your listeners can certainly go out and and look him up. But okay. he's the real deal. But anyway, we, we were always accustomed to getting uh, strange deployments and, and no notice uh, uh, signals to to get our our go bags and get on an airplane. But usually they were just for training. But uh, but this one was this one was interesting. Uh, there was myself and nine other people that uh, they got told to pack a bag and, and get on a plane. And we had no idea where we were going. Uh, we initially flew to Dover Air Force Base in Delaware and transferred aircraft and uh, then we hopped on a uh, and honestly i don't remember if it was a 141 or a c5 at the time i want to say it was a 141 but i honestly don't remember and they still didn't tell us where we were going until we were well airborne and, and past the point of uh, no return on our trip and they told us that we were heading to jordan and i was like uh, you know what the hell's in jordan because, you know, at this time I'd, I'd been in the military for a few years and, you know, I'd already served a, a significant amount of time in the Middle East. And I had, uh, you know, I'd done the desert storm thing and nothing had ever happened in Jordan. You know, we were familiar with, with Syria. We had, were familiar with uh, Taif and, and al kars and Dahran and Saudi Arabia and, you know, all these little cities or, or areas or territories or AOs. But nothing had ever happened in Jordan. So we were really curious about what's going on. And, uh when we when we got in country and we landed uh, the first thing that I noticed is that we were on a Jordanian air base that looked like it had been demolished I mean it just it was in the worst state of repair of any place I've ever seen I was kind of surprised that the uh, the aircraft that we were on was able to to actually land there and it was just it was just bad and we stayed off base uh, we stayed in base housing uh, not like in barracks or anything but like what used to have been Jordanian officer housing is is where we were staying. And uh, for quite some time, and by quite some time, I mean a couple days, we still didn't know what we were going to be doing. Uh, we just kind of sat around and our team was together and we didn't have any marching orders. We didn't have any instructions on what we were doing. And then all of a sudden we all got split up. Which is not something that's normal. Uh, normally, when you deploy with a team, you stay with the team, you work with the team because you know your team members, you trust them to have your back, and you've got theirs. It's very rare that you get deployed and then moved off into a an, another team with working with people that you don't know. But that's exactly what happened. And uh, I got pulled away and I got sent on uh, graveyard shift, which was fine by me because in the desert, you know, it's it's 120, 125 degrees during the day, and then you're dying <laughs> yeah. so. And, of course, I live in Vegas now, so I didn't learn my lesson. <laughs> but uh, I was fine working night shift because it's a lot cooler. And uh, I get uh, I get to my post, and uh, I don't remember if it was a, a captain or a lieutenant, but he basically said, all right, here's, here's your post. What am I doing? He's like, well, you're guarding this crate. Okay, what's in the crate? Don't ask that question. All right, what do you mean by guard the crate? Where are my SOPs? Where's my rules of engagement? He was like, just don't let anybody near it. Can you define near it? No, just don't let anybody near the crate. Okay, is anybody authorized near the crate? No, don't let anybody near the crate. What happens if somebody gets near the crate? Shoot them. And, you know, just, I mean, that was that was the response. Just don't let them get near the crate. Oh, and don't get near the crate. I was like, okay, so don't get near the crate. Don't let anybody get, uh, don't let anybody else get near the crate. I, I got it. I'm tracking. So that's what I did for like three nights is just walk around this giant crate in the middle of the desert and not let anybody near it which was easy because there wasn't anybody there. It was just this big ass crate in the middle of the desert. And and by large crate I mean this was a giant wooden crate that you could have put a small car inside of. Oh wow. and okay. sealed it up. So, you know, it was it was a, almost as tall as I was if not as tall as I am um, and, you know, probably 15 feet long maybe eight nine feet wide in solid wood Uh, looks like something uh you would see on an old cartoon or something just it's just weird right no markings no insignia no no nothing no placards no nomenclature no military serial numbers nothing on the crate it was just a giant wooden crate that i wasn't supposed to let, let anybody near and of course at this time you know, I'm, I'm not a staff sergeant. I'm still lower ranking. I think I was a, a senior airman, E3 at the time. I was in my early 20s. And, of course, my sense of responsibility wasn't quite evolved at the time. And there was nobody watching me. There was nobody around. There was nobody monitoring me. There was another guy that was there, but he wasn't really there. He was kind of doing his own thing at the same time, too, right? But back then, I smoked. And I smoked like a chimney. I was, I was probably a pack and a half, maybe a two-pack-a-day smoker. But you can't smoke when you're on post. Because, you know, you're in the middle of the desert. It's dark. It's nighttime. You light up a cigarette. You're giving away your position. If there is somebody out there watching you with night vision goggles, you just lit up a neon billboard. Uh, even, even the cherry on the end of your cigarette will illuminate your entire body on night vision goggles. So I just decided that I was going to start walking away. Uh, from the post to go have a cigarette, you know on or around some sand dunes that were nearby. But I walked maybe maybe about a hundred meters out and uh, crawled up on a sand dune where I could still kind of look down and and see the uh, see what I was supposed to be guarding, but there was literally nobody in in the AO uh, to guard it from. So I did this for the you know the first night or so. and then the third night, uh, the guy that was uh, was stationed out there or posted out there with me. he decided to come out and have a cigarette. At the same time I did. and this this was the night that uh, that I saw what I saw. and it was was obviously pitch black. It's in the middle, middle of the desert. There is zero civilization around. There's no ambient light. there's no street lights, so hell there's no streets. There's just sand, dirt and uh, in the box. And I don't know if anybody's listening has has been out into the middle of literally nowhere, especially in the desert, but it's dry very few clouds if any clouds and you can see so many stars man i mean just so i'm laying on this sand dune and i'm looking just imagine me laying flat on my back looking up at the night sky and just seeing the most beautiful spectacle of our cosmos that you could possibly imagine and uh i just i don't know why i did it i just decided hey i want to look at see what this looks like with the night vision goggles so I reached down and got the, uh, the night vision goggles out of the pack and I strapped them onto my head and got them focused in and I'm just laying back there and I am absolutely in awe. Because if you've ever looked through night vision goggles, man, it, it is not what you're seeing in the movies. Of course, this was also back in the 1990s, so the tech wasn't as good as what we have now, but it was still pretty damn spectacular. So for every star that I could see with my naked eye, I could see a thousand more with the night vision goggle. And it's like the universe just said, hi, I'm here. Stare at me. And I could see satellites. I could see satellites orbiting. I could see things in, in, uh, above the atmosphere tracking. It was easy to identify satellites. I could see shooting stars that you would not be able to see, because uh, they would be so dim, uh, without the night vision goggles. But with them, I, I could see, you know, blazeouts of tiny little meteorites that were coming in and bouncing off the upper atmosphere. I could see absolutely everything. And then I saw what I saw. And it freaked me out. Again, I'm lying on my back and I'm looking straight up. So the easiest way for me to describe it is I saw a pinpoint of light that came from my six o'clock position and it shot up to my top dead center, my 12 o'clock position, as I'm looking straight up. And it made a 90 degree left hand turn and shot off to my left horizon without slowing down or without even thinking about slowing down. This thing went from horizon to horizon in under two seconds. And it, it weirded me out. And uh, at, at first I thought that the night vision goggles were malfunctioning. So I, I took them off and, you know, I kind of, tap them with my thigh. sand man sand in the jordanian desert gets everywhere it's it's not even what i would call sand it's like evil dust <laughs> i mean you, you you chew it you breathe it it, it forms on your eyelashes it's, it's it just gets everywhere so i was just assuming that there was uh there was dust or, or something inside the imaging tube of the uh, the night vision goggles so i took it apart and blew on it and kind of shook it out and screwed it back together and put it back on and look back up and saw it again same exact pattern it's like it just just shot from my six o'clock top dead center makes a 90 degree turn and shoots off to my left and it starts doing it over and over and over again and i'm watching this thing every few seconds it just 90 degree turn off to the left like i said the the, the other guy was out there and this is the guy that i went on reddit to try to find to okay. try to identify this guy And I have no idea who it was because, like I said, my team got split up. So this is a guy that I didn't know. I had just been posted with him, right? So I I took off the night vision goggles. We call them nods. I took off the nods, and I handed it to this guy. And he's like, what? And I was like, just look. He's like, what am I looking for? I'm like, just look. So he's laying down. He takes a cigarette. He sticks it in the sand, and he puts the night vision goggles on. And he's laying back, and he's looking up, and he's not saying anything. And a few seconds go by, and the next thing I know, I saw his head track. Like, I saw his head drop down and swing to the left, and I'm like, yep, he saw it. And he takes the nods off, and he just hands them back to me. He pulls out another cigarette, he lights it, and he walks off. That was it. He didn't say anything. He didn't acknowledge it. He didn't say, yeah, I saw what, you're, what you saw, or what the hell was that? He just lights a cigarette and walks off. We never spoke about it again. And it just burned itself into my brain, man. So it... Anybody who's listening that's ever wore nods, you know you have no depth perception. It's why I broke my back. Um, so it's very hard to judge altitude. But there are ways of estimating altitude. And my best guess, without getting into all the math and the, the size of my finger at an arm's length and things like that, my best guess was that it was well over 30,000 feet and probably much closer to the 110,000, 120,000 foot range, which is, you know, skirting the edge of our atmosphere. That's where I believe this to have been. Now, this was not an airplane. This was not a satellite. Uh, because we were where we were, this was restricted flight areas. And like I said earlier, I, I could see satellites. Satellites don't move like that. The amount of thrust that it would take to make a satellite do a 90-degree turn at that speed is insane. And when things turn, any conventional aircraft, any conventional spacecraft, when they turn, they have an arc. They have a slow arc. It's like you you can't make a 90-degree turn without either losing speed or having a radius to your turn. And this never lost speed, nor did it have a radius to its turn. And it repeated this pattern multiple times.
0: Jeremy, can I ask, um, yes. just a few technical questions? Uh, you know, um, estimating that altitude. Yeah. Of course. You're right. That's pretty, pretty high in elevation. Um, so maybe some of these answers are can't really be deduced, but, um, did you hear any sort of, propulsion, see any sort of exhaust? Again, I know it was nighttime. You had night vision goggles on. And last question, about how long did the event last, you think, from like first seeing it to when you two were like, I'm done with this?
2: Yeah, so uh, last question first. Uh, yeah. The entire thing, my experience lasted approximately seven to eight minutes. And, and I saw it repeat multiple times inside that seven to eight minutes. And the guy that I showed it to, or the guy that saw it for himself in the night vision goggles, he saw it at least once because I saw his head track in in but about seven to eight minutes. Sound wise nothing. There there was there was nothing. And even even let's say that there was a conventional aircraft at the same altitude, it was so far away I probably wouldn't have heard anything anymore. Right, right. But when you're looking through night vision goggles, it is an amplification of light. It is not recording or transmitting signals for heat. Uh, or uh, infrared or anything like that. It's, it's literally just light amplification. So there was no way to tell if this object was hot or cold or if it was emanating a trail of, of hot gases or anything like that. Uh, I saw only what I saw. But what I saw is not something that I am familiar with in being able to do what it did. And, and skipping ahead just a little bit, when I was being interviewed by Lou... And this is something that didn't actually get into the show, but Lou asked me the question, and I had never even considered this. I hadn't considered it at all until he asked me. He said, Jeremy, do you you think that this was one object repeating the same pattern, or do you think this was multiple objects following the same flight path? And when he said it, man, the hair on the back of my neck stood up, and it just creeped me out because up until that point, I had never even considered the possibility that this was more than one. And if it was what Lou is, is hinting at, man, this was 20 or 30 of these damn things.
1: What is it that makes us so interested in what we don't understand? We're setting out to investigate everything strange, unusual, and scary in our world they're going to be able to scan your brain and upload it to a computer. Some people think of it as, like, the greatest victory that we could ever have because it makes you immortal in a sense. I think it's terrifying. It It is terrifying. We invite guests who bring their own personal perspectives.
0: I mean, especially considering the fact that the overwhelming majority of UFO sightings and documentation occurs within miles of nuclear testing facilities.
1: Yeah. They bring their own encounters with the paranormal. All of a sudden, I feel this whoosh of wind and this ringing in my ears so loud that makes me stand up straight. And we both had this moment of, you know, maybe we should get out of here.
0: It was a hot summer day and a hot night. But when I went into this one room, it was freezing. And I, to this day, it felt like somebody was going to push me down the stairs.
3: A few months into living at the new house, I was woken up to the lamps being on and the snow globe music box going off. Hello and most of all we just have a ton of fun.
2: Jacques would never eat not a single bite. Just sip from his glass of wine. He
3: was a vampire. He was a vampire. 100% a vampire holy fuck. My name is Ashley and this is my co-host Lauren. Hello weirdos. And you are listening to Keep It Weird.
0: so, to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Wow. So, a fleet of them. Um... Potentially. Potentially.
2: Potentially. Right. right. So, and, and, and I don't know. I don't know, man. It just. I never got my pilot's license. But I was I was going through flight school, uh, on the civilian side. Okay, and I've flown tiny little single engine aircraft, and I've got probably maybe, 115, 120 hours as pilot in command of small single engine aircraft, and I I studied uh, aviation administration in college and aerodynamics and things like that. And this did not do what conventional wisdom dictates that something that moves does it just it just didn't work right
0: well the the ufo itself jeremy is super intriguing but um it seems like all roads lead back to the crate so i want to dive into the more sensitive part of all this with you if we can um first of all did you report this to anyone or was it kind of you know kind of such a Odd experience and it was like, huh? All right, that was interesting. Um, but you didn't see any potential threat at the time. Um, yeah, any reporting yeah, protocol or no, anything
2: like that? No, okay. uh, no, I, I there there is no way in hell that I would have said anything to anybody except for the guy that that saw it. Right, and he didn't say anything else about it. Um, for for two reasons. One, it's the 1990s, and I saw a UFO. Right, right. What the hell? Right. I mean, we don't have at least my unit didn't have written operational procedures on how to go about reporting that second thing is i had walked away from my assigned post you know i'm smoking a cigarette on duty when i was told to guard this really super sensitive crate and i just kind of said screw it i'm going to go have a cigarette so no i'm not going to walk up to my co or or to whatever the, the, the guy in charge, the major, the captain, or whoever he was, and goes, hey, you know, when I was abandoning and derelict of duty and smoking a cigarette, I saw something that I want to report. So the thought of reporting it was not something that I was going to do.
0: Before we get to the crate, Jeremy, I remember in the interview with Lou on the episode, you mentioned there were all types of military at the base at the time, mm-hmm. and officials and, and yeah. agencies. Um, is this common or uh what did you make of all that I mean again I assume all roads lead back to the crate but yeah what do you make of everyone that was on this base that a lot of people didn't even know about
2: yeah so there are joint training exercises that the military does we do them with foreign uh nations we do them internally you know the the army and the air force and the marine corps we all to get together and we do Uh, joint training exercises uh, quite often what is different is that when we do those joint training exercises we use something called miles gear which is basically the military version of laser tag and we use blanks in our weapons and you know we we have special keywords that we're using on the radio and we have white hat uh, safety guys walking around the ranges making sure that nobody's violating the rules of the exercise um, and everybody knows that it is an exercise this was not that i had live ammunition i had 240 rounds of 556 i had 18 rounds of high explosive grenades strapped to my vest uh, cuz it was a two i was a two or three gunner this this was this was not an exercise and the guy the, the the people that were there the units that were there man i saw i saw people from 75th ranger battalion i saw people from navy special warfare i saw people uh, from the 101st, uh, I I saw guys that had mismatched uniforms and no name tapes on. I saw people wearing the blue windbreakers that said FBI or CIA on the back of it. But what really really struck me the most, and and because at some point in time in my military career, we've worked with all of those types. Never at the all, all at the same time, but we've we've done work with them in the past. But what struck me more than anything is I saw people from the DOE, Department of Energy. And the Department of Energy, when when you take the Department of Energy and you put them with Naval Special Warfare, the 75th Ranger Battalion, uh, the CIA and the FBI, you're looking at a, an event that is not an exercise. This is, this is a real-world deployment, and this is something that is straight up a nuclear type of event um you don't put that type of time manpower resources and personnel into something for for training at that level and you you certainly don't do it with live ammunition Uh, okay so this this was everybody that was there is involved in nuclear safety operations
0: so that leads to the obvious question now uh the crate i mean i know you said you've since spoken to individuals who can kind of paint a picture for you of what might have been in there or why or who or so I'd love to get into that Jeremy whatever you can share your own personal opinions or that which was told to you what are we talking about what do you think was in that crate and was it at all connected with the UFO activity
2: yeah. So, uh, last question first. I absolutely, positively believe that yes, it has a direct correlation with what I saw in the sky at the time. Again, this is early '90s. I'm in my early 20s, and nobody's telling me anything. Uh, but through observation, through looking around, through seeing all these people in the Department of Energy, you know, you you kind of put things together uh, just based on personal observation. Given the fact that the Soviet Empire had collapsed, and given the fact that at the time. Uh, it was a known issue to have lost or stolen nuclear devices from the Soviet Union. Um, and we'd had security briefings and safety briefings on things like that, and that was something that people were looking for actively, uh, was trying to account for, uh, for nuclear weapons from the Soviet Union. But I was under the impression that what was in the crate was ours, and that it was probably something that would emit a radioactive signature that our satellites or our sensor tech on our aircraft would be able to identify in in an effort to kind of train our guys on how to look for lost or, or stolen nuclear devices, you know. Because if you're doing like an aerial survey, you're putting giant X's on the ground to to zoom the cameras in and get the focus and things like that. So I just kind of assumed that maybe what was in this crate was something that would trigger the sensors on the aircraft that were looking for this right and i just left it at that for for years but it still it still bugged me because the ops tempo was not that of an exercise it was that of an actual real world event and it bugged me and it and i just started thinking over and over over the course of 20 some years that the idea that this was just some sort of signature device inside this crate didn't work out for me. So I just I just started basically putting boots on the ground and uh, I started digging things up and 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 calling people and talking to people. And uh, one of the things that did not make it into the show is the story that I gave them, which is verifiable, and I'll I'll give you the link to this that you can probably post on, on your site.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um,
2: But there is a document from the CIA and it's hosted on CIA.gov. And I've got it up here on my screen, but it's testimony by the director of central intelligence, John Deutsch. And it's from March 20th, 1996, less than a year after my experience in Jordan. And this is a direct quote from, from John Deutsch during his congressional testimony. Now, keep in mind, this is a year after after my experience. And he says, we have no indication that Iraq has attempted to acquire fissile materials from the formal, former Soviet Union. We assess, however, that Iraq would seize any opportunity to buy nuclear weapon materials or a complete weapon, in much the same way that it attempted to rejuvenate its missile program late last year. In that incident, Jordanian authorities intercepted a shipment of sophisticated Russian-produced missile guidance instruments bound for Iraq. A year after my incident, he is referring to an event that happened in Jordan during at the, the same time. time that I was in Jordan. Wow. But he's saying that it was... Sophisticated Russian-produced missile guidance instruments. Okay, sure, maybe, but when I saw that and I read that, and this is, this is multiple pages of information, I mean, this is a congressional testimony that just goes absolutely bonkers. I mean, he's, he's talking even about uh, the ability to, to bribe certain Russian guards with bottles of vodka to allow <laughs> passage without papers to smuggle nuclear material across, you know, uh, West, eastern Europe. It's a wide swath,
0: if you will,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, I, uh, I really went down the rabbit hole, and I, I started turning over everything, and I started digging where, where anywhere I could dig, and, and keep in mind that this is all open source. None of this was classified. This was just picking up the phone and calling people and talking to people and saying, hey, I know that you were in the military at this time. Did you happen to have anything to do with this exercise? Were you there? And, and finally, I, uh, I landed on one guy, who was actually interviewed by the History Channel? Uh, they did not air his testimony, but they used him as validation for my story. And like I said, it didn't it didn't make the show, but uh, it it happened. They they interviewed him, and he he basically told him them that while he could not absolutely confirm uh, the contents of the crate, that my developed theory of what actually was in the crate was most likely accurate. I think mm-hmm. is this told them. But to, to backtrack a little bit, and, and not to take up a lot of time, I believe now that what was in the crate was not just sophisticated Russian Russian guidance uh, material. It was actually a recovered nuclear warhead that had been intercepted and was probably bound for either Iraq or uh, North Korea. And that uh, most likely Jordanian authorities had intercepted it and then we got it from Jordan, and that's what was in the crate, Uh, and I'll even go so far as to say that I believe it was probably, and there are reasons that I'm saying this, I'm I'm not going to go into how I got to this conclusion Uh, anybody that's listening to this can do their own research and probably dig up the same information, I'm just not going to say how I did it Um, but I I honestly believe that what was in that crate was what's called an SS-24 and it is a basically a nose cone of a Russian nuclear ICBM that carries 10 warheads. And I believe that eight of the 10 warheads were still on that device inside that crate.
0: That that just gave me chills, man, yep. even thinking about that. That is a massive force of power right there.
2: Yeah, yeah. Wow. And one of the reasons... I will say one of the reasons because this is something that nobody else can do because it's no longer there. It's, it's gone and done with. But going back to saying, you know, when I was in my early 20s and people tell you to do something, you kind of tell them to screw off and <laughs> I have no supervision and don't get near the crate. Okay, well, what do I do? I get near the crate. Hell, I stood on the crate. I laid on the crate. I sat on the crate. I pissed on the crate because um, there's nobody there, right? And uh, about nine years ago, I got diagnosed with a very specific type of skin cancer. Uh, which is caused only by radiation exposure. Now, luckily, I've had it uh, excised. It was uh, surgically removed, and it has not reoccurred. But it was in my groin, and I am not a nude sunbather. Other than sitting on that crate and pissing on that crate, I have no reason to think that I was ever exposed to radiation anywhere else in my military career. Uh, or civilian life, and going back through the way that I think of things, the way that I put things together, if I'm secreting uh, fissile material, if I'm secreting stolen warheads or bought warheads across Eastern Europe, these things are heavy, man. I mean, they've got lead shielding, they've got lead plating. They're you know they're they're radioactive, so they're secured, and they're they have radiation dampening uh, uh, provisions to them. But if I'm going to put that in the back of my truck, I'm going to get rid of all that. I'm going to make it as light as I possibly can uh, because the guy that's paying me for it, they they want the radioactive portions. They don't care about the shielding because they're going to either use it or they're going to reverse engineer it. And I'm going to put it in the back of a truck and I'm going to make it as light as I can because I want to extend my fuel supply for as long as I can possibly drive that thing. So I really think that that crate was hot.
0: And that just amplifies the fact that a UFO was possibly sighted during that. And uh I got to ask, you know, when it comes to discussing the UFO portion of this story, Jeremy, with Lou, did you guys deduce at all what you both personally or collectively think the thing might have been in the sky? Or do you have any idea in retrospect now? Or are you just as mystified today as you were back then?
2: So... I had a conversation with Lou before the taping. We, we kind of accidentally bumped into each other at the hotel the day before uh, the interview. And Lou told me things that it, it, it blows my mind, man. Um, the validation of what I saw, the fact that I'm not the only one that has reported these things, the fact that I'm not the only one that has reported that thing at that time, at that place, the fact that what I saw fits into a very specific pattern, it fits into a very specific association of of uh, nuclear movements, all sorts of things. And 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 I've had conversations with Lou uh, post uh, the show, and he has never told me what it is. He has never told me if he knows what it is. I have a very very solid belief that he knows exactly what it is. But I also believe that why he knows what it is is because of his association during his involvement with the government, which falls under his classification and his security clearance, and he cannot say. So until an open source verification of that information becomes present or until the government declassifies what it is, Lou is censored.
0: It's frustrating because us as viewers, and especially the UFO community, are frustrated that we can tell. We can tell he knows more than he's allowed to talk about, but he has stated as such and made it very clear. And, you know, I respect him for that. There are certain things he cannot talk about, but he's still pursuing these things. And, uh you know, we've even floated the idea that he's finding individuals to proxy this information through that can get it out
2: to the public.
0: Now that's, you know, that's a whole other story. But
2: uh, yeah, what do you, you know, think? I, I, never, I never got that feeling from Lou. Lou and I have a lot of commonalities. We, we both belong to a very specific uh, fraternal organization. And uh, I, I found that out uh, when I met him in person. So there are things that he has told me that I trust implicitly, because we both have taken two of the very same oaths, uh, one one with the military and, and one with this organization. And uh, so so I trust him more than I trust most people in, in giving me information like that. But I think Lou's on a mission. I think Lou's on a mission to uncover and find unclassified sources to validate the information that he already has in his head. He's adamant to me that I am going to know what it was that I saw, that I will in my lifetime, know what it was that I saw.
0: That's exciting. Many UFO witnesses never get that opportunity, especially in the military. Well, you know, sort of piggybacking off of that, Jeremy, what you saw. I know you're sort of new to the UFO world, as it were. Um, I am a UFO researcher who focuses on individuals who've had an experience. You know, everything from a light in the sky up to the most sensational claims of alien abduction and everything in between. But it's not even those experiences or my, my own beliefs or judgments on it. It's uh, how it impacted the life of that witness, of that individual. Yeah. I got to ask you, after having this UFO event with something... On the ground that is highly, highly, highly sensitive. What does this leave you feeling? Has this UFO event impacted your life or changed you in any way?
2: Yeah, it pissed me off. It 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 angered the hell out of me because, man, when I when I went into the military, I pissed red, white, and blue. You know, I didn't question anything. I saluted the flag. I was like, you know, the United States is the absolute best place in the world, and if you don't like it, GTFO. That was that was my first experience, and it was an eye-opening experience. And I'm not talking just about the UFO. I'm talking about the crate as well. We might not always be the good guys. And that really, really opened my eyes to a lot of things. And I say that because in my research, I believe that I've tracked down the final dispensation of that crate, where it went and why it went there. And if, if my hypothesis and my theory is, is true about that, the United States may well deserve a lot of the bad monikers that we've, we've earned over the years. And this is coming from a guy that, you know, I, I served my country. I flew the flag. Um, you know, I've, I've watched, I've, I've lost guys, I've, I've watched people die, um, you know, and at the time, you, you think that there's a reason for it, you think that you're doing the right thing. Um, the final dispensation of the crate, as far as I, as far as I am aware, uh, it tells me that it may not have been the right thing and taking the fact that if the government did what i believe them to have done with that crate they are pretty capable of of lying about just about anything you ask me if it changed the way i look at i don't trust people for shit anymore
0: we can't even pretend to know what you know you're talking about and when that will come out and um when you'll finally have that vindication. However, uh, that's a very strong statement to make, but clearly justifiable. So you have to wonder, you know, if it was used for purposes that aren't so, you know, well-natured as a country or whatnot. Uh, it's too bad that damn UFO didn't stop it, you know? I mean, those these are questions you'll probably struggle with forever and lou will probably struggle with and and all of us will so yeah
2: i told lou and i told anthony my theory behind it and they they didn't agree they didn't disagree lou seemed to accept my idea of the final dispensation and where things went just because of his experiences and i think i think he was not nearly as shocked as i was because he's been in that world their, their reaction to when I told them about that was was enough validation that I'm on the right track. Um, it did not make the show at all uh, for obvious reasons. And I'm not even saying here uh, what, I, what I believe the final dispensation of that crate to, uh, to have been. But the guy that they tracked down and the guy that they interviewed, uh, that's what he validated. He said that my theory on that is more than likely correct.
0: That is completely fair. Um, I'll leave it at that in terms of that. Um, well, switching gears a little, Jeremy, I'm gonna, I gotta throw a couple listener questions your way if you don't mind. Cool. Yeah. We had some excited people on Twitter and Facebook for this, man. Um, Andreas on Twitter asks, what do you believe about how the phenomenon? I, I assume he means UFO phenomenon is being dealt with in Congress. Do you think they should open up everything or do it delicately or? Yeah, what do you make of all this new information about the oh. Senate Intelligence Committee and UFO task forces? And it's crazy, man. This is an age of UFO uh, acknowledgement by our government that none of us ever saw coming. Um, but everything is
2: the weirdest year that I've ever seen in my. In my <laughs> and this, we've we, we've we've got murder hornets. We've damn near got shark We've got killer frogs coming in from South America. Obviously, COVID. I don't. What the hell happened? I mean, are we living in a sim and somebody ran every subroutine at the exact same time? <laughs> it's some something went sideways here. Yeah, um, the phenomena. How's it being dealt with in congress? that's that's a good question. You know, I'm probably gonna i'm I'm probably gonna piss off a lot of people with this and and by a lot of people. I mean people in Congress if if they listen. People in Congress are not special. They are just like us. They get elected into the position. They don't know any more, any less, about human nature than the, the Tom, Dick, or Harry off the street. They just had the virtue of being elected into that position. Uh, most often than not, they had the benefit of having a shitload of money that got them elected into that position. Uh, and having money does not necessarily mean that you have humanity's best interest in mind. The way that they're dealing with it, they are self-serving. They look for what is in their best interest. And I think, I think right now we are kind of a litmus test because if you go back 10 or 15 years ago and if you had somebody from Congress in an election year stand up and say, hey, I want the UFO files declassified and the people should know it, that dude is not getting reelected. But now mainstream pop culture and general ideas and, 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 and democratic sentiment across the board is starting to be a lot more accepted of this UFO phenomenon or the, the the idea that something else may be out there, that we may not be alone. So Congress now has a little bit more leeway on an individual level. A congressman has a little bit more leeway to look into it in a more open forum without getting voted out of office as a nut job. So the stigma that we had in the military for not reporting it, it translates no matter where you are, into the government realm as well. So should they open up everything or do it delicately? That was the second part of, of Andreas's question. Mm-hmm. I think that my answer is probably the wrong answer. I tend to think of myself now, especially because I don't trust anybody anymore, I tend to think of myself now more, a, a little bit more of an anarchist than, than I was previously. I think that it just should be laid out. You know, open up the Library of Congress, open up the secret files, you know, put guided tours into Area 51 and say, this is what we've got, deal with it. Had it for the past 65 years, and boom. That's probably the wrong answer.
0: Hey, I love it, man. As a child of, uh, you know, the punk rock persuasion, I uh, completely understand that sentiment. And, I mean, look, rip the Band-Aid off and see how humanity fairs in some ways you know i mean look at how we're dealing with a global crisis right now people are you know so you know divided that it's it's making things worse so you have to wonder if we drop this disclosure bomb is that going to happen again or is it going to make things better or worse these are huge sweeping generalizations but uh Yeah. yeah you have to wonder if you did take that anarchist route and just break everything down and build it up again from scratch, you know, maybe that is you know, the answer.
2: You know what I would love, Ryan? It I don't know the demographic of your listener base, but if there are some of your guys that are listening to this that are working in AI, uh, deep analytics, game theory, and things like this, and, and may have some university funding money behind them, I would love for somebody to create an open source and publicly accessible simulation on what happens to society post-disclosure. I want to see the result of that sim.
0: Interesting. I never even thought of that, man. Like, find those algorithms. That's fascinating. Hey, any of my listeners out there, and I do have a younger audience than um, a lot of these other UFO shows tend to have, so if you're listening... Please reach out to me. Possibly Jeremy. We'll, we'll see. Or I can, um, proxy that to you. Um, please. Yeah. I want that too. Now that you mention it, it was the thing I never knew I wanted, but I now want. Um, right. <laughs> well, all right. Well, here's, here's another one from Electro DJ on Twitter. Love that name. Uh, did anyone else you worked with during this operation think something was out of the ordinary simply with the cryptic nature of it all? Or do you think that there possibly could have been some sort of Crash or something? I mean, we did sort of cover this. He did say it was something possibly retrieved, but um, did anyone else? I I guess to kind of um add to this question, Jeremy, did anyone else ever tell you about UFO activity at this base or anything weird or mysterious going on?
2: No, no. Okay. This okay. this was unlike any operation that I'd ever been with, and, and you know, nobody. To answer the first part of the question, did, did anybody work with? during this operation, think something was out of the ordinary. Everybody that was there was out of the ordinary and everybody that was there was out of the ordinary to everybody else that was there. So the 75th Ranger Battalion would have been looking at my unit going, what the hell are these guys doing? My unit's looking at the 75th going, what the hell are those guys doing here? The FBI is probably looking at the CIA going what the, the at the going, what the hell are those guys doing here? And the CIA's probably looking at the FBI going, what the hell are those guys doing here? Now, that's at the the boots-on-the-ground level. Somebody had coordinated all of this and put all of this together, and that's the group or the individual or whomever that had the complete and total picture. But this operation was so compartmentalized that you didn't know, the guys on the ground didn't know what the other guys on the ground were doing. Everybody had a task, everybody had a purpose, and everybody executed it with military precision. But... We didn't know what the other side was doing, so there wasn't an opportunity to to think that somebody something was out of the ordinary because everything was out of the ordinary.
0: I have to ask as an Air Force guy, the Navy now has new UFO reporting protocol. The Army is working with Lou and to the Stars Academy on looking at materials possibly extraterrestrial or not man-made that's a whole other conversation but i have to ask you as former air force why has the air force been so quiet about all this i mean what what, we we would we would assume they'd be the first
2: yeah we haven't been quiet you know what we did we created the space force
0: mic drop right there you're so right man i didn't even think about that
2: everybody else created a form Hmm. to report it we created a new branch of the military
0: really good point, especially right now when we see what Russia's up to and yeah. uh possibly sending weapons up there already man didn't even think about that you're right i, I yeah, I have no argument there let's move <laughs> to uh let's move to Peter on Facebook. he asks sure. what happened to the crate after that? did you uh, ever see it again or uh yeah yeah what what happened there man
2: well that's that's what I was talking about i i think that I am about at an 80% self-convinced position that I know what happened to the crate. And that's what I, I said has, has pissed me off. And that's what I said, that it's a high probability that the United States is not the good guys uh, oftentimes. And if that is true, that has, changed, that has changed my entire view of geopolitics at the macro level. Nothing. Nothing that happens can be can be definitively explained upon first viewing. Anything that you see on world news. I mean, we're, we're, we're what maybe five or six hours in as we're recording this. There was an explosion in Beirut yeah. uh, earlier today that looked. Or they're saying it was a fireworks factory. That, that went up, but if you look at the pressure wave that came off that thing, have your listeners look up what a czar bomb is and look at the, uh, uh, the explosions and the pressure wave from the czar bomb and then compare it to the pressure wave that came off of this fireworks factory. Yes, there was a fireworks factory there. Yes, you can see fireworks happening. Yes, the smoke was purple, which probably indicates potassium iodide in, in, the, uh, in the smoke from the fireworks. But that pressure wave was a singular explosion, and it really looks like something like a czar bomb. And you put this together with the location being at a port and being in Beirut, and man, I'm telling you, if people believe that that was a fireworks processing facility that caused that explosion and pressure wave, they are discounting so many other things that it more than likely is. Everybody uses Occam's razor, you know, in if you don't know what the truth is, the no simplest explanation is probably the right explanation. They're paraphrasing it. But now that I know what the government does and what other governments do, that is the simplest explanation. Man, I think that in that case, uh, probably what happened in, in Lebanon is they were transporting one of Soviet's very powerful non-nuclear uh, bombs, and somebody had an... Oops,
0: well, we'll let our conspiracy theorists run with that, but that is a highly yeah. educated observation, Jeremy, I'd say on your part. So, I'm not discounting anything, absolutely anything at this point. But
2: but to answer to answer Peter's question, yes, I've mm-hmm. I've tracked down people that were on the receiving end of that crate and were in different locations where the crate ended up, and it doesn't make me happy.
0: We'll leave it at that. All right. Our last listener question here comes from Lisa and quite a few others, myself included, have this question for you. Uh, Have you talked to any of the other people that Lou interviewed uh, this season, past season, or not even on the show, other military officers? Um, Yeah. Has this kind of opened the world and the discourse for you with other servicemen and women about
2: this topic at all? It has, but I approach it with caution. Uh, Mike V., Via, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Mike. If you're listening, I apologize for butchering your name. Uh, Mike was the guy uh, that was featured in the bright, uh, the Black Triangle episode uh, mm-hmm. in episode two, and he was the uh, the naval signals analyst that uh, that was in episode two. Mike and I tracked each other down, and we've had a series of conversations, and we've we've kind of refined our own personal theories about things, and and shared uh, a, a lot of things that you're not going to see on the show. Uh, We've shared a lot of things that you're probably not even going to see if you, uh, if you dive into the black vault and things like that, just things that, that we've had access to that we're not either capable or ready to, to mention. But, but yeah, we've, we've talked and some of the folks that I've known in the military uh, have, have reached out to me post show. And said, "Hey, I don't, I don't want to be on the show. I don't want to have anything to do with this. But I just want to let you know that when I was in Iraq, or when I was in Erbil, or when I was in Kandahar, uh, you know, I had I had a similar experience. And this is my story, man.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And I mean, I will I will be the first to admit it was not easy tracking you down. I uh, I had to get a little uh, stalkerish in terms of the internet. But hey, it's the age we live in. But uh, I think that's good because otherwise. Man, once you start talking about this topic, you're in. It's like the mafia. Yeah. There's no getting out. So kind of piggybacking off of that, where do we go from here? Your personal thoughts on UFOs and these phenomena. Are we dealing with one phenomenon when it comes to UFOs uh, or multi-phenomenon, I guess, is a good way to put it? Um What do you think is the most important thing to take away from uh, your dive into this world of UFOs and for humanity overall, I guess. Pretty broad question there.
2: (laughs) The absolute most important thing to take away from this is don't trust shit. And I'm sorry if I'm cussing on your your show. I don't know if you have to bleep that out. No, not at all. Don't trust what the government's saying. Don't trust anybody. And don't even trust your own eyes. Until you can see it, taste it, hold it, feel it, and verify it, don't trust it because this goes back to what I think the government did with that crate. If they're capable of doing that with the crate, they're capable of doing some really nasty crap. And the second most important thing is my personal belief. Yeah, we're not alone. We're, we're just we're just not.
0: It's a very powerful statement. I appreciate you you know, saying that, especially with what you've been through, what you've seen, what you haven't seen. And uh, everything in between, Jeremy. Um, That's all I have for you here, man. Is there anywhere that listeners might be able to reach out to you? Or um, would you rather remain private in terms of that? Um, Yeah, anything you're willing to
2: share. A a, a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Um, I'm findable. You found me. Uh, So today, uh, right before this recording, I actually created a brand new Twitter account just for uh these types of conversations it's it's separate from my personal pages it's separate from my my normal social media and it's just to compartmentalize this if anybody wants to reach out to me and and talk to me about this uh they can they can get direct with me i don't know if you want me to, to give it to you over the air or if you want yeah, me to give sure. it to you okay if you don't mind. so i am going to have to read it cuz i haven't memorized it cuz i just created it today <laughs> so it's uh my twitter for this is at Jeremy, J-E-R-E-M-Y, unidentified, but it's not spelled out. It's Jeremy, J-E-R-E-M-Y, U-N-I-D-E-N-T-I-1. So it's Jeremy unidenti1.
0: You're going to get a lot of followers after this releases, man. (laughs) Let's
2: measure this because as of right now, I've got eight.
0: Okay, okay. Hey, the slow and steady, uh, horse wins the race, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Took me years to get where I am. So, um, oh. brother, I have to, uh, welcome you into the somewhere in the skies family. Um, I thank you sincerely for all that you shared with us today. It was a lot. And, uh, your honest opinions are what we want on this. You know, we're so used to, um, carefully worded, documents and spin when it mm-hmm. comes to uh disinformation and and narratives and agendas of whether it's the government or military so um the fact that you were willing to come forward on the show and now on other outlets to share what you saw and what you experienced uh again it's only adding to that uh that mountain of evidence that we yeah. we're all looking for so yeah is there anything you want to leave the listeners with before we wrap up here
2: uh, the only thing that I want to say is is that, and, and maybe we can we can push this into a second interview later on down the road or, or what have you, but there's a reason for this disclosure push. Something is happening.
0: Hopefully for the better. Jeremy, I have to thank you so much for, again, for your service to our country and uh, for coming on here and talking with me at length about this and for joining me today on Somewhere in the Skies.
2: Absolutely. It's been a pleasure, Ryan. Thank you.
0: That's it for this week's episode. If some of you will recall, I tweeted about some disturbing things Jeremy and I discussed, and a lot of people asked what it pertained to. This is the first time in Somewhere in the Sky's history that I could not share what a guest had to tell me. For two reasons. It was said in confidence by our guest and requested to not be made public. Yet. Second, where that crate ended up and for what purpose is something that can be tracked down with enough research. I urge you to reach out to Jeremy McGowan on Twitter. He started a Twitter account for this very reason. So be sure to reach out to him at JeremyUnidenti1. Again, that's at JeremyUnidenti1 no matter the case, his UFO event adds to the growing list of military witnesses coming forward to tell their extraordinary UFO stories, and I thank him for keeping an open dialogue with all of us. Maybe someday, and according to Luis Elizondo, someday soon, Jeremy and all of us will know what happened that night in the Jordanian desert. Also, Jeremy was super accommodating and stuck around for a little post-show Patreon discussion. We debrief by talking about why he believes all of the current UFO discussion by the public, the military, and the government is being rolled out right now. If this is disclosure, why is it happening? His answers are truly fascinating. This special bonus episode is now available to patrons over on the Patreon campaign. To listen, or to learn more, and become a member, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Be sure to check out the rest of Season 2 of Unidentified, airing Saturday evenings on the History Channel. To learn more, visit history.com. You can follow us on Twitter at somewhere skies and Instagram at somewhere skies pod. Please take a few moments to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It truly helps us to possibly get featured on various podcast tabs. Thank you in advance. If you have a UFO story you'd like to share on the podcast, reach out to me personally by using the contact tab on the website, somewhereintheskies.com. I'll see you here next week. And remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching Somewhere in the Skies.
1: Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network.
3: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing.